The citizens of the United States cherish sentiments the most friendly in favor of the liberty and happiness of their fellow men on the other side of the Atlantic. In the wars of the European powers and matters relating to themselves, we have never taken any part, nor does it comport with our policy to do so. It is only when our rights are invaded or seriously menaced that we resent injuries or make preparation for our defense. With the movements in this hemisphere, we are of necessity more immediately connected, and by causes which must be obvious to all enlightened and impartial observers. The political system of the Allied powers of Europe is essentially different in this respect from that of America. This difference proceeds from that which exists in their respective governments, and to the defense of our own, which has been achieved by the loss of so much blood and treasure, and matured by the wisdom of their most enlightened citizens, and under which we have enjoyed unexampled felicity, this whole nation is devoted. We owe it therefore to candor and to the amicable relations existing between the United States and those powers of Europe to declare that we should consider any attempt on their part to extend their system to any portion of this hemisphere as dangerous to our peace and safety. Any interposition on their part for the purpose of oppressing the American republics or controlling in any other manner their destiny by any European power can only be regarded in the light of a manifestation of an unfriendly disposition toward the United States. That is from President James Monroe, his seventh annual message to the Congress of the United States on December 2nd, 1823, declaring the Monroe Doctrine, whose bicentennial we now celebrate. I'm Joshua Trevino, and this is The Hard Country. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Hard Country Podcast. My name is Melissa Ford, and I'm a policy director at the Texas Public Policy Foundation, and I am joined by Joshua Trevino, the Foundation's Chief of Intelligence and Research. Josh, I think you just broke a record for the shortest passage you've ever read, but We're thank you for reading it. Trying to improve. <laughs> so you chose a passage about the Monroe Doctrine, and we are coming up. Well, actually, we just celebrated the 200th anniversary, I think, on December 2nd. Yes. Some celebrated, of, some merely marked. Yeah, some, some yes. not so much, but, yeah. but it is the anniversary of when it was first articulated yes. in 1823 Correct. Um, by James Monroe. So can you tell us a little bit about why you chose that passage for today's episode? Uh, absolutely. Yes. Thank you, Melissa. You know, the Monroe Doctrine is, is, uh, has sort of been relegated to the dustbin of history, uh, particularly in the past 30 years. Uh, it, was, it was last current in U.S. political discourse uh, really in the 1980s when there was uh, you know, significant questions about um, uh, the, uh, the the movement of international communism onto onto the American mainland and places right. like Nicaragua, for example. Um, but since then, it's fallen by the wayside. You know, I say it's been forgotten in the United States. Uh, it has not been forgotten in Latin America uh, by by any stretch. Where I would say, you know, cor correct me if this is not your experience growing up in Bolivia, but uh, you know, when you hear the Monroe Doctrine invoked in Mexico, for example. Uh, or in Central America, um, you know, I've, I've, I've worked in Nicaragua, and you can you can hear a lot of Monroe Doctrine talk there. It's always in the context of this very malign and oppressive uh, U.S. tendency to intervene uh, in the in the lives of these American republics, and so I think it's fair to say it's um, uh, regarded as mostly a negative. Uh, do, do you disagree with that? Uh, did did, did yeah. you hear about that growing up? By the way, I mean, no. I mean, I mean, the United States has never intervened in Bolivia, really. Um, I think most aside... Bolivians have never heard of it, but I, but okay. I do agree that a lot of like people in Latin America that hear from it think it's like the U.S. is inability to mind their own business. Sure, yeah. sure, exactly. So I want to I want to make an argument uh, here on the show uh, that is going to uh, forever disqualify me from working at the uh, at the United States State Department, uh, which is fine. Um, uh, I want to I want to argue. It will also uh, make me unpopular uh, if I'm not already with uh, great swaths of Latin American political society. I want to argue that the Monroe Doctrine uh, is a positive good, and and is a positive good for Latin America too. Uh, and let me explain what I mean by that. Uh, you know, in every in every you know order of nations, it's going to be a hegemon uh, of some sort. So the question really is not uh, whether there's going to be a hegemonic order, particularly in in like a Westphalian system and a pre uh, really a pre uh, 1945 order of nations. Although there's there's, there's mm -hmm. hegemonic powers after that, um, uh, but the question is who who is it going to be? 
when the Latin American republics in aggregate separate from uh, the Spanish Empire in uh, really kind of this, this this extended period in the decade of the 1810s and 1820s, uh, and then the full independence of Brazil uh, comes roughly contemporaneous with that, a little bit after. It, w w Brazil becomes fully independent, like the like like the the, the branch of the Portuguese real house relocates to to, to Rio de Janeiro. Um, I've forgotten the year. I've forgotten the year at which it happened. But anyway, so 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 all these all these republics come into come into being, and and uh, and th they're weak. Um, I think the Brazilian state probably had the most uh, the, the most resilience, but there's not a lot of internal cohesion. There's a lot of um, working out of, of what borders are and what polities are and so on that, that basically extends for uh, it's still underway now uh, mm -hmm. in some ways and so and so there was a real sense that that uh, that these republics weren't going to last uh, that they too were re republican smaller republican experiments much like the united states and that eventually there would be a european power that would step in and take them over and you actually saw this happen uh on on more than one occasion you saw um uh, I think it was. I think it was uh, the the what's now the Dominican Republic actually reverts to Spanish rule at one point, which is uh, crazy to say, but it does. Uh, uh, resubjects itself to that. Um, uh, both the Spanish and the French make efforts to take over Mexico. Uh, the Spanish are thwarted by the efforts of the Mexicans themselves. The French, uh, I would argue, were thwarted because the United States enforced the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, and so, and so, you know, what what keeps you know in in, in kind of this the, this framework in which there's this chronic weakness. I, I don't want to overstate it too much. Uh, Chile, for example, was a very cohesive polity in the uh, in in the 19th century. Argentina as well, um, uh, but uh, you, know, you can't really say that about about uh, any republic between mm -hmm. the Darien Gap and the Rio Grande. Unfortunately, it's just it's, it's just reality. Uh, and so, and so, you know, the question is, who's who's going to be there to control it? Uh, you know, my my argument is that had the United States not declared the Monroe Doctrine, you know, exactly two hundred years ago, uh, and then found the means in the second half of the nineteenth century to really enforce it, you know, to start bringing, you know, its 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 will and its imposition to it, that uh, there's a real possibility that Latin America, including South America, would have ended up with something like the fate of maybe not Africa, but certainly uh, a lot of East Asia, uh, partitioned out into spheres of influence, possessions of great powers, and so on. And the fact that that didn't happen, uh, it didn't happen to the same extent that it did anywhere else, uh, mm -hmm. particularly in the great age of colonization, is because the United States took the far-sighted decision to uh, to uh, assert itself uh, in this way. Um, uh, I'll I'll close with this, not to filibuster all the way, but I'm, I'm an enthusiast for the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, uh, obviously, you know when, when when you look at when you look at the United States strategic position, this gets ignored uh, quite a bit. Essentially, between 1815, so you have the Treaty of Ghent and the close of the War of 1812, and then and then essentially uh, uh, 1848, which is the close of the Mexican War. So you have this period of, of, of basically a generation, really a 30, 30, 30 to 35 year period, in which at the opening of the 35 year period. Um, the United States actually is in uh, serious strategic peril on every front. Uh, you know, on the high seas, they're inferior to the Royal Navy, uh, not qualitatively, but just in terms of sheer numeric power. Um, the Spanish Empire is significant, uh, and there's a real question as to who's going to control uh, the Western approaches to North America. Um, the British are are still in Canada, obviously, and and uh, are capable of repelling an American invasion and also setting fire to our capital. Uh, and so, and so, and so, there, there's not a real sense that the United States, as such, although it's large and it's prosperous, that it's strategically secure. And what's interesting about this this stretch of history, um, and you have to give the Jacksonians principle, though by no means sole credit for it, is that every one of those strategic issues gets solved in that in that 30 to 35 year period. Uh, every one of the of the of uh, the threats in being to the United States, whether it's from the United Kingdom or the Spanish Empire, what becomes the Mexican possessions, all of it gets resolved. The Monroe Doctrine has to be seen in that light. Uh, it's a, it's an effort to take a strategic threat to the United States off the chessboard, and and uh, the reason that we ought to remember it is not purely historical, because we have let it go by the wayside, because we have decided and kind of indulged in this holiday from history, uh, post Cold War, and and allowed. Um, uh, strategic independence in the Western Hemisphere that, that frankly previously didn't exist to the degree that it does now. And so outside powers, it's less a matter of Latin American nations asserting their strategic independence, but it's outside powers are now allowed in. I mean, it's, it's simply crazy that we've allowed Hezbollah, the Iranians, the Russians, yeah. the Chinese mm -hmm. to establish themselves in the Western Hemisphere as they have, but they have. We need to remember that that it is it is assertions like this and doctrines like this that kept the United States safe for 200 years, and it's time for us to rediscover that because those theaters and those theaters of strategic action and threat um, uh, will reassert themselves 
given our negligence. Thank you for listening to all oh, that. Yes, yes. Thank you, actually, for giving that background. I think a lot of people are not familiar with the Monroe Doctrine here or a lot of people in Latin America. So thank you for that. And also, I will say, I think you can rest easy tonight. This won't make you one of the most hated man in Latin America. I think there's a lot of it's people stiff that rank worse than you. So yeah, don't okay, worry. Fair. <laughs> <laughs> so I th- actually think I'm glad that you were talking about the Mon- Monroe Doctrine. Um, and since you started on that, I think that it's a good place for us to start talking about some breaking news that some people might have been seeing um, on TV or articles about. Um, I know I've been having a lot of people ask me about it. And that is that it appears that Venezuela might be invading Guyana yes. um, soon. And we've heard a lot of talk about this, but this is all over this piece of land. Um, it's So let me back up and give it some context. Um, for people that might not be familiar, I know some people are like, where is that? You know, a lot of people have no idea where Guyana is, and I don't blame them. You don't hear about it very often. I want to hear your views on this, actually, because it's just so extraordinary to think of South America as a theater of war. It's it's because uh, we don't see it very often. Right. Well, right. we haven't seen it in like a hundred years. Oh, right? the last one was uh, what the Chaco War, right? And, yeah. Uh, which which involved Bolivia. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think. Anyway, it's been it's been a while. Yeah. S- setting aside the Falklands, of course. Yeah, which... Which is British territory. Yeah, yeah, Yes, right. I, uh, I think I was just telling you, I was just watching that episode of The Crown, and it's very good for those of you who haven't seen it. It's very stirring, yes, yeah, it's yes. Interesting. Uh, please. But but basically, to back it up and give a little bit of context, um, the conflict is all over this piece of land. Mm-hmm. Um, and this piece of land is called the Esequibo, and it's been, you know, part of a major political battle for a very long time. So it's it's a territory that's made up. It's actually really beautiful. I looked it up online, a couple of pictures of it. It looks a lot like our Amazon in Bolivia, oh. but it's made up of like rivers and um, and waterfalls and like all these tropical forests. And apparently it's like very rich in, in oil and minerals and, and diamonds. So it's a very rich area. And it's two thirds of Guyana mm-hmm. and it, I believe about 125,000 people live there. So not just a piece of land, but it's 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 70 it's percent of the country. Of it's yeah, uh, it's 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 most of, of it's most of Guyana by territory. Yeah, yeah, it's but... huge. I actually printed a map oh, because sure. I was okay. like, I need to I need to <laughs> okay, figure out ahead. what this looks like. Yeah. So if this gives you a little bit of context, this is the disputed area. So it's you know it's been part of a major political dispute, not just for decades, but for centuries. Okay, please. So I'm going to give you a little bit of historical context. Um, so this goes all the way back to when Guyana was a British colony. Mm-hmm. So in 1899, there was what they call like an, an arbitral tribunal. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm used to saying it in Spanish, but it's basically like this this group of of people um, that are impartial. That it was decide. convened by the United States, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah. And so they, they like help resolve disputes um, in the way of arbitration. And so they awarded this area to Britain. Because at the time, Guyana was a British colony. We'll have to post a map of the Essequibo yeah, and, and, and dispute it in the, in the comments. Yeah, we can put it in. Yeah, In the exactly. show description, I'm sorry. Yeah, I think you have to see it to like fully understand it. But um, at the time, it was basically awarded to Britain, mm-hmm. um, which was the colonizing power. Yeah. And the Venezuelan government continued to, to deny that award for about 60 years, a little bit over 60 years. This was in 1899. Mm-hmm. And then the next thing that happened is in 1966, um, Britain and Venezuela reached an agreement that they would uh, basically establish a a commission. And Guyana at this point was independent. So Mm -hmm. they established a commission with Guyana representatives and Venezuelan representatives um, to, to basically like revisit the issue. But not a lot came of it. And the area is still incredibly controversial and to this day is considered zona de reclamación. So like an area that's still in dispute. Okay. So that's why, and this is fascinating to me because I didn't know that before I started doing all of this research. Um, but I called a friend, I think I told you, I called a friend yesterday that's from Venezuela. He lives in Caracas. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me that depending on who you ask, so if you were to ask um, someone in, in Venezuela, uh, schools teach it this way. So if you were to ask like a 10-year-old kid, in Venezuela to show you a map in one of their little textbooks of the area of Venezuela, it would include this portion. Oh, interesting. Yeah, and but if you were to look up online, like the map of the UN, the international map of the UN, um, it, you know, Venezuela area is much smaller and it ends at the border with Guyana. Mm-hmm. But a Venezuelan would tell you that Venezuela goes all the way from Colombia on the left 
to the Esequibo River. So they still consider that area as theirs. And Venezuela has never in its history controlled the Esequibo. Is that right? Like it, it's just, it's been, it was basically Terranolis. My understanding is it was Terranolis and, and then the British, the British uh, end up purchasing what becomes Guyana from the Dutch at a certain point, 1830-ish or so. I don't remember the, the exact date. Uh, and then they survey it, they impose a line, and that's and that's sort of it. But Venezuela's never had effective control. It's kind of like a um, uh, somewhat different circumstance, but it's kind of like the, the, the Chinese communists claim to Taiwan, which is an mm. island that they've never controlled uh, yeah. either. And so it's it, it's sort of... It, it's kind of fascinating, the history with it. I didn't yes. realize it went back for such a long time. Quite a while. Like hundreds of years. Yeah. 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 So, yeah, it's but it's an area that's been in dispute for a very long time. So why continued. do we care now? So why do we care now? Yeah. Okay. So... so the reason that this is now an issue these days is because the Maduro government, so, you know, we've talked about Maduro on this podcast mm-hmm. before. Leftist populists allied with China. Yeah, yeah. Not, not great things, but, but yeah. they've developed like a very strong interest recently in reclaiming that part of the territory. And I think that's because in 2015, um, commercial oil was discovered there. Yes. And with how terrible the economy is in Venezuela right now, that would be very valuable and very precious to Venezuela. Because we should clarify, PDVSA, which is the state oil company in Venezuela, although Venezuela itself has just absolutely stupendous reserves, right? Yeah. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, but they've they've wrecked their infrastructure with uh, 20 years of socialism. And their so now that, now they just need something raw to plunder. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but go no, ahead. No, yeah, worth. thank you for bringing that up. The, the Guyanese gave Exxon the contract. Yeah, ExxonMobil. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And so, you know, not a new conflict, but w- the more recent developments were um, on Sunday, there was a referendum in Venezuela, which asked the people of Venezuela if they support taking action to reclaim that territory. Yeah. And I think there was like five questions, like, do you believe that we should reclaim this territory? Like a, cu- a couple of different questions. And after they got the results, the Venezuelan government came out and said that 95% of people voted favorably. So they voted yes. Do you find that, I, I'm just curious, uh, and my, my limited understanding, I've never set foot in Venezuela, but my limited understanding is that, is that uh, based on what a lot of what you've shared with me, um, you know, pre-show, is that uh, this is a legitimately popular issue in Venezuela. So even opponents yeah. of the Maduro regime think that the Esequibo should be yeah. theirs. Do you find that, in that light, do you find the 95% number credible? Or is this just another phony phony Maduro referendum that uh, we, yeah. we can't trust? Well, it's hard to tell, right? Because mm-hmm. obviously, like, the electoral system um, in Venezuela is not super reliable and very questionable. Okay. And okay. these are numbers that are given by the government. Like Wisconsin's. <laughs> yes, no, please. So, yeah, these this, this is a percentage that was released by the government. So mm-hmm. the government is telling people that it's 95%, but obviously, like, they haven't had fair and free elections in Venezuela since Maduro rose to power. Okay. Um, so it's a, it's questionable on that end. But I will say from what I've heard, this is like a very unifying issue for it's all of Venezuelans. Legit popular. So, you yeah. know, it, it, it very well could be 95 percent, to be honest. The nature of dictators is, is so interesting. You know, I, I recall uh, in, in a previous life, actually, this is uh, almost exactly... Uh, actually, almost exactly 20 years ago this month. Now that I think about it, December 2003, I was in Rwanda, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, there was a there was a political officer at the U.S. Embassy who was telling me about a similar phony referendum that was run uh, by the by the regime in in Kigali, and um, uh, and so they concocted a number. Uh, it, it was 95 percentage. This is why it comes oh, to mind. It was 95 percentage. You'll have to forgive me. I've forgotten the exact subject, but they but they did a phony referendum, 95 percent, and then having having been the ones who created the figure, they then hunted down the 5% and, and threw him in jail, even though the whole thing was confected from the top. Uh, so, it, well, it's, it's the nature of autocracy, right? Like, like, especially when you have a paranoid autocracy, which absolutely characterizes the Venezuelan regime, yeah. that's going to leverage these things for nationalist purposes. Anyway, uh, please, sorry, c- continue. It just well, it comes to mind. Like, I, I need to research this a little bit more, but apparently people are being thrown in jail over that in Venezuela. I need to research. Oh, really? Over yeah. the Esequibo? Yes. Oh, I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, I, okay. I saw an article. I didn't have time to read all of it this morning, but I did see something along those lines. Were they? Do, do you recall who it was? Were they individuals who actually opposed the claim, or were they anti-war, or what's their? What was their? Um, I think. Pe- I think it's people that were standing in the way of something oil-related. Oh, so of course. So we'll to maybe I'll, I'll link something. I'll link. I'll link the article that I saw for our listeners, so okay. I don't leave you guys high and dry. Okay. But um, so anyway, we'll we'll jump right back in, but. It's unclear what all of this is going to mean. So like we were saying, like this is a pretty unifying issue, but it's it doesn't seem like there will be military action from Venezuela. At least I wouldn't think so, because 
Guyana is being supported by the United States, by mm -hmm. the United Kingdom, by the Caribbean, even Brazil. Like we talked a little bit about this, so yeah. so it doesn't seem like it would be in their best interest. There's just too much too much weight from the other side on this. Let me let me let me pose a contrary uh, thing. If you if you wanted to roll the dice, the United States is stretched thin. I mean, we can't even get artillery shells to Ukraine, right? Uh, yeah. And so, and all of our, you know, our, our, our major deployable carrier assets are not all in the Middle East, but they're mostly focused oriented. So, so everything to put 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 things in terms of combatant commands, everything's in CENTCOM and to a lesser extent in Indo-PACOM. Um, Southcom, which is responsible for everything south of Mexico, uh, is uh, d doesn't have much, uh, and. Uh, there's credible arguments. I mean, who knows that uh, you know the major protecting power for for Guyana. It's not going to be the Guyanese because they they just don't have the population to stand up to Venezuela. But it would be the Brazilians, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and I, I would have to say the Brazilians. Uh, I mean, everything everything is notional as you as you tabletop war game this. So don't take this as anything more than armchair prognostication. Um, but the Brazilians would be in a tough spot. Uh, there's an argument that they're strategically inferior, qualitatively inferior to the Venezuelans who have been on the receiving end of a lot of Russian and Chinese and Iranian expertise Oof, yeah. quite a bit. Mm -hmm. And the Brazilians uh, haven't. Um, uh, and and when you look at the transportation networks, uh, you know, there's I don't want to overstate this, but, um, uh, you know, railheads and, and roads from from Venezuela to Guyana exist. They're meaningful. Yeah. Uh, you know, you could drive from Caracas to um, what's the capital of Guyana, Georgetown, I think. Uh, so, uh, so, so, you, so you could do that. See if it's on your map. It's not. Yeah, uh, no, uh, but, right. but 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 you you could, you could do that. Uh, I don't I don't think you can drive uh, from Brazil. I think I think there's there there's Amazon like Amazonian jungle in between oh, yeah. uh, the two. And Very so. Thick. Yeah. Quite. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So, so it's 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 not clear to me that the Brazilian uh, case, and I, I have no insight into whether the Venezuelans would do something so foolish. But um, I mean, just who knows it, with Maduro? Who knows with Maduro? Let me ask you this though. I'm I'm, I'm curious in your opinion on this. Uh, uh, let's say let's say I mean, I mean I think we know what the instrumentalization of this is as it exists, right? Like it's it's good for the regime. Uh, you know, Maduro's delivered especially right now because his yeah. popularity has been falling a lot, and he thinks this is a unifying issue which it is and he has apparently. like he's right now he's facing a newly like unified opposition so yeah. he thinks that this might be an easy win for him it could be uh you know which which is a similar situation to what the argentinian junta looked at in 1982 when they decided yeah. to invade the falklands they too were kind of on the downswing you know they were gonna which they ended up signing their political death warrants as it were yeah uh, but uh, so 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 let me ask you this. So, so let's say hypothetically Venezuela does this. They go and they seize the Essequibo. They get it and they stop it. Uh, you know, they stop and, and there's like a sliver of, you know, 30 percent of Guyana uh, that's left. Um, what 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 do you think? Put you on the spot a little bit. What are the follow-on effects of that? Let's say let's say they do it and they hold it, and then and then the, the uh, set aside the United Kingdom, which is I'm not even sure the UK armed forces can defend the UK at this point. Uh, they've just cut to the bone uh, in so many areas. But uh, if the United States has to has to basically mount a, uh, a desert storm for Guyana, uh, which uh, you know who uh, you think Ukraine's unknown um, to the general public, uh, yeah. Guyana's known by almost nobody. Um, it, it's it's mere existence. Um, is that is that a rational bet worth worth making for the Venezuelan regime? I mean, is that is is, is that something where they say, you know what, I think we can do this because I don't think the Americans like Brazil, who would care who would who uh, who would care who would do more than than uh, than protest? Yeah, you know that's a very interesting question because something similar like is happening in Europe. You know, there's the Ukraine stuff going on, mm -hmm. but when I was in Poland recently, like they're terrified that they're next. And yeah. that's why they're helping Ukraine. That's why they're taking their refugees. Yeah. So it's a good question. What would happen, especially with a leader right now like Maduro, that's so power hungry and and honestly, like kind of delusional in some ways. Right. But yeah. we yeah, it's it's interesting. I will say, though, like from what I've heard from some of my friends that I've talked to this area that's in dispute, like before Maduro, before any of that, like they they all were willing to fight for it. And so mm. who can say what would happen under this like crazy dictator? What would be next? Um, I don't know. We should but... draw we, you know, we should draw some lines here because typically the hard country is about Mexico and the border and things yeah. like that. But the reason I mean, the reason we're talking about this, of course, is that yeah. this is going to spur a lot more migration. And it also ties in with themes that we've discussed many times on the show, which is which is that the Western Hemisphere has been neglected by by American policy. Yeah. Uh, and so and so, you know, you, you think uh, kind of at a grand level, 
um, whether by deliberation or happenstance, there's a proliferation of crises, right? There's the Taiwan crisis, which is slow rolling. The Ukraine crisis erupted upon us in February 2022, which which is uh, in many ways wrecked uh, a lot of our um, industrial capacity. I say wrecked. It's I mean we we ramped up, but but we're unable to to supply that war. That's one war. We used to have a two regional war standard in the United yeah. States, and we threw it aside about 25 years ago ish. Uh, and so, and so that that's happened. Um, the war in the Middle East, uh, which which no one except the bad guys expected, uh, uh, has has come out, and that's basically drawn away a lot of our naval assets. And now there's a crisis that looks like it might erupt right here in the Western Hemisphere. Yeah. And we have to ask ourselves, um, uh, you know, what's what's our priority? Uh, you know, one of the arguments I'll make, I don't want to uh, impute views to you on this, is that uh, even though um, I think, uh, you know, like going to going to you know put America on the line for Guyana uh, is not, uh, I mean, who who cares about Guyana? I'm not doing that to disparage the Guyanese, uh, you know, have a very legitimate claim to the defense of their country. Um, but to our earlier yeah. point, you know, nobody really knows about it. Yeah. It's such an obscure thing. Uh, you know, you know, in, in candor, like I didn't know. You may have. I didn't know the word Esequibo uh, until maybe 21 days ago uh, at most. Yeah, right. Yeah. So, so all of which to say, but the principle of the thing, which is that, which is that there's territorial aggression in the Western Hemisphere. There's disorder of the type that you see in the Middle East and Europe, metastasizing and coming here. Um, you know, one of the arguments I would make, and I think you know, you know, watchers of the hard country hopefully are, are well familiar with it at this point. Uh, is that is that of all the disorder around the world, you know, all the all the threat around the world, and it's all real. The one right here at home in our hemisphere is the one we should be concerned with first, because that's the one. You know, somebody could. Uh, people are literally doing this. I mean, it sounds crazy to say. Somebody in in a war zone in mm -hmm. Venezuela or Guyana could decide they've have enough and walk to Brownsville, Texas. People literally do this. You know, they. I mean, they yeah. have to. It takes months. They go through the Darien oh, Gap. Yeah. It's, it's 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 a hellish journey. I've but talked to people that have come from that far. You have, yeah. yes, that's that's exactly right. I, I've run into Venezuelans too. Yeah. Coming, I think we've talked about this before, like coming out of the river, and so and so and 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 they make this journey. I mean, I mean, as bad as things are with the collapse of society throughout uh, Latin America, the collapse of political order, uh, to add a regional war to it uh, would just be um, catastrophic, catastrophic on levels we've yet to see. No, I agree, and thank you for bringing that up. That's why we're talking about it, right? Because yeah. we should care this not just we should care about this not just as Americans, but especially Texans should care about mm -hmm. this. And we've made the case, I think, at least a couple of times on this podcast, of why Latin America is important and why it's been ignored for so long, not just by the United States, but especially by the conservative movement, right? Yeah. And right now, what we're seeing is we're seeing an international le left, right, that keeps tightening their grasp on Latin America. And we should care because those are like our enemies. And, and they're, we're, you know, Latin America is making them really, really rich and really, really powerful. Yeah. yeah, that's right. And so even that, like, we'll get back to Mexico after this, but you're seeing that a lot in Bolivia, right? Because Bolivia has the largest and it's almost untapped um, trove of like battery lithium, right? Batter battery metal lithium oh, sure, in the sure. world. Yeah, yeah. And earlier this year, no one knows about this, but earlier this year, they signed a contract with China mm -hmm. to um, begin to extract it. And so we're seeing that all over. Like China's moving in, Russia's moving in, Iran is moving in, and like the United States doesn't bat an eye. So when are we going to wake up? When it's too late? Right. Um, and, and everything that's happening down there, again, like even this like you said, it's going to lead to refugees. It's going to lead to movement. And so I think it's very important for people in Texas to be aware of it. But can I uh, can I leverage this to kind of loop back into the Monroe Doctrine a little bit yeah. uh, on this? Uh, not to uh, the, hopefully this is a short passage uh, to read, but, but but I do want to read this. So one of one of the interesting things with the Monroe Doctrine, which explicitly excludes uh, you know, extra hemispheric powers from mm -hmm. the Western Hemisphere, is this Roosevelt Corollary that that comes up in in 1904. So so not quite a century, but you know about almost almost 80 81 years after the Declaration of the Monroe Doctrine, you get this Roosevelt Corollary from President Theodore Roosevelt. Are you familiar with this one? No. Um, uh, so a little bit less well-known. So in, in his fourth annual message to Congress, President Theodore Roosevelt says this. Very interesting. He's talking about the Monroe Doctrine and what it's done. He says, uh, quote, it is not true that the United States feels any land hunger or entertains any projects as regards the other nations of the Western Hemisphere, save such as are for their welfare. All that this country desires is to see the neighboring countries stable, orderly, and prosperous. 
Uh, any country whose people conduct themselves well can count upon our hearty friendship. If a nation shows that it knows how to act with reasonable efficiency and decency in social and political matters, if it keeps order and pays its obligations, it need fear no interference from the United States. Chron chronic wrongdoing or an impetus which results in a general loosing of the ties of civilized society may in America as elsewhere ultimately require intervention by some civilized nation. And in the Western Hemisphere, the adherence of the United States to the Monroe Doctrine may force the United States, however reluctantly, in flagrant cases of such wrongdoing or impotence, to the exercise of the international police power. He closes with this, this passage. He says, if every country washed by the Caribbean Sea would show the progress and stable and just civilization with which the aid of the Platt Amendment Cuba has shown since our truce left the island, in which so many of the republics in both Americas are constantly and brilliantly showing all question of interference by this nation with their affairs would be at an end. So what he's saying in this is that uh, not only does the Monroe Doctrine obligate the United States by its nature to keep out foreign powers, but that good governance uh, is an obligation on the part of the Latin American republics. It's, it's, I mean, it's a very nakedly hegemonic uh, proclamation and that if a Latin American republic yeah. cannot govern itself well, uh, if it becomes a void of disorder, then the United States must step in uh, to provide it. And so, so th th this actually characterizes uh, the American approach uh, for, for most of the rest of the 20th century, actually. The most dramatic example, uh, the most dramatic recent example, I should say, being the U.S. invasion of Panama in 1989. Um, uh, but you saw it again and again, interventions in Cuba, taking over Haiti, taking over Nicaragua, uh, multiple interventions in Mexico, and so on. And this Roosevelt Corollary is very interesting because it pops up in, in other contexts uh, under different names. Uh, in the early uh, part of this century, uh, the 2000s, uh, which seems odd to say, uh, you know, because I'm, I'm of an age. Uh, my, my, my kid the other day uh, said that uh, he found something from, uh, I think, like, uh, like, like the 1900s. And he was talking about something from like 1995 <laughs> or something like that, which is, which is very alarming uh, to me. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, in, 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 in the early 2000s, uh, you know, post 9-11, there, there was this policy discussion about kind of ungoverned spaces, ungoverned zones. And what do yeah. you do about these ungoverned spaces and zones? And uh, I, the answer, at least during the, during the George W. Bush administration, is that you invade them. Uh, uh, and, so, and so we've kind of, from a policy matter, we've sort of pulled back. But, but, but it keeps hitting us over and over again in various parts of the world. We're, we're experiencing it now with, 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 with Yemen, right? Like there's actually been policy discussions uh, with the Biden team as to, you know, what you do about the Houthis in Yemen who were attacking shipping and so on. So set that aside. But, but, but just be aware that this is not just a U.S. Latin America thing. You and I have discussed, uh, Melissa, this idea of ungoverned spaces in Mexico now. The fact that, yeah. you know, to, you know, to cite uh, Ambassador, former Ambassador Landau, um, Mexico has turned over 35 to 40 percent of its sovereign territory over to cartel rule. That's an ungoverned space. I mean, it's governed. It's just governed by bad people. Yeah. So who steps in? You know, one of our arguments has been that the United States, although we don't want to you know, do almost anything to avoid it, but the United States needs to be prepared to do that in some cases, you know, simply for our own self-protection. This Roosevelt Colliery is making that case very specifically. And again, it's something that those of us who deal with cartel issues, border yeah. issues, Latin America issues, uh, need to think about and you know however much you know one might object i'm certain i'm certain there would be strong objection in latin america and mexico to the phrasing of you know president roosevelt on this um uh the the principle remains the same and and i agree with him i i, I agree i agree with all of this but i agree i agree on two major points one is that the u.s must be prepared to do it but the other is that it is far preferable by orders of magnitude for the latin american republics to do it for themselves so it's I'm, interesting. I'm so glad you brought that up. I had never heard of this. But now that I have, I think that, you know, I, I want us to talk real, really quick about um, Janet Yellen's visit, visit to Mexico. But after that, ties I will right ask in. you about something that I think ties but, right into this. And okay. that's the small, what's happening in the small Mexican town of Sasabe. Sure. Um, I think that's how it's pronounced, yeah. I would think. I but think so, it's yeah. just this like tiny town um, surrounded by like desert and mountains mm -hmm. um, that's completely ruled by the Sinaloa cartel and how that's provoking a lot of movement towards Arizona. So I'll ask you about that next. Okay. Um, but right now, I think we'll uh, shift gears and talk a little bit about issues we're very familiar with, which is what's happening in Mexico. And I wanted to ask you about uh, Treasury Secretary Janet's Yellen, mm -hmm. Janet Yellen's visit uh, to Mexico. So the purpose of her visit, um, I think today is her second date there, but it has been to talk about fentanyl arms trafficking and money laundering. And so a couple of things that she's done during her time in Mexico so far is she had a private meeting with President Andres Manuel Lopez Obrador. Mm -hmm. And we don't really know what was discussed, but apparently it was pretty good because I'll read you um, what he posted on social media after it. And then also she signed um, 
a memorandum of intent to focus on a national secure to focus a national security lens on foreign direct investment. Yeah. So, you know, again, although it was a private meeting and we don't know what happened in that conversation, um, the president said on social media that the good neighbor policy between Mexico and the United States is a tangible reality. Our relationships span various dimensions from friendship to collaborative efforts in economic and financial affairs. As a result, my pleasant meeting with Janet Yellen, the Secretary of the Treasury of the United States, proved to be highly productive. So can I get your thoughts? Oh, man, uh, I have a lot of thoughts on that. Uh, we have to put Yellen's visit uh, into context, yeah. several several different contexts. Um, uh, you know, th- there has been more and more criticism from within the Biden administration of AMLO this year, yeah. as there has been a realization that AMLO could uh, could scuttle re-election for for President Biden. I mean, I mean, that's just the reality. I, I would love to I would love to think that they're they're stewards of the nation, but let's be let's be candid. Uh, their the, their real interest is in Win is an in election. you know yeah. will they will they scuttle re-election by allowing another migrant crisis uh, to do which I mean there, there's a horrific migrant crisis as it is. Um, uh, but uh, but so 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 to that end, um, the DEA chief has criticized uh, AMLO. Uh, the there was an undersecretary at the State Department who criticized AMLO you know, on public and the re- in, in public on the record. Which is which is unusual to say the least. What's interesting to me is that is that the the treasure two, two things are interesting about this. One is one is that uh, uh, you know uh, Secretary Yellen goes and um, and she arrives at, at essentially two programmatic agreements. I mean we'll see what the adherence to it is because you know an agreement is one thing, but execution is something else. One is um, some work on fentanyl and precursor chemicals, mm-hmm. which is good, and the other is this very interesting foreign review board. Uh, that apparently the United States and Mexico are going to jointly run to make sure that uh, the Chinese don't economically move uh, into Mexico, which which kind of surprised me uh, in full candor. It surprised me for a couple of reasons. One is that um, uh, AMLO and the Morenistas have been uh, perfectly happy to accept Chinese investment. In fact, uh, I think you and I have been on on uh, WhatsApp chains together in which mm-hmm. uh, the folks have been talking about how the Chinese basically have a lock on reconstruction in Acapulco. Yeah. Uh, you know, you know, after the hurricane there, which is which is which is exceptionally rele- revelatory. And so the fact that that uh, they're publicly agreeing to this working group, which presumably will give the United States a say in curbing curbing foreign direct investment mm-hmm. from China. In Mexico, that's a big deal. That is Roosevelt corollary action under the Monroe Doctrine, although no party involved would ever say that. But it is the same policy principle that's animating this, yeah. uh, which I think illuminates our thesis that it's, that's where you have to go. So the Mexicans are acquiescing to it. Who knows what the, you know, carrots don't typically work with the Modernistas, but sticks do. Uh, and, I, and I wonder what the stick was. I just don't know, uh, you know, because as you say, it's a closed door meeting. That's one thing that's interesting. The other thing that's interesting to me is that the Biden uh, regime is, is is leaning so heavily on the apparatus of the United States Treasury mm-hmm. uh, uh, as being at the forefront of its Mexico policy. Yeah. Um, uh, it's not DOD, which you know clearly wants nothing to do with with Latin America in general. Uh, but it's also not DOJ. Uh, which which you would think would be would be like mm-hmm. the stick. It's not in and and it's not Department of State either. So 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 none so of for, the obvious ones. None of the obvious yeah. ones. It's really Treasury. It clearly it clearly shows the um uh, the the approach that the White House has decided to take with the Mexicans in terms of the enforcement arm. So the fact that it's the Treasury Secretary who is actually getting these these positive outcomes. I mean, let's be let's be uh, charitable. I mean, these these are good. I'm glad I'm glad it's happening. Uh, uh, also, you know, you can you can read a lot into it. Um, uh, uh, one thing I think you you definitely can read into it is, um, frankly, the failure of the Department of State yeah. uh, in advancing the American interest. Which I mean, I mean, you and I have spoken with. I mean, we've spoken with a lot of good people in 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 that apparatus. You know, in in Mexico, out of Mexico, and so you know, I, the, the, frequently good public servants. But uh, you know, one one of the issues with the State Department, wherever you go in the world, is there's a tendency to identify with. The, the subject matter nation, I think yeah. uh, I'll, I'll put yeah. it, and, and and you absolutely see that in the Mexican mission, you know, 100. Yeah. No so, so so I guess Treasury is now uh, your you know you know congratulations America, your defense is in the hands of um, the men and women of the United States Treasury, which you know unexpected. I, but okay. uh, well, I mean may, they 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 may do a good job uh, with this, uh, but these these are positive outcomes. But yeah, Mexico has um, under AMLO, uh, they've surrendered a measure of sovereignty. Uh, in favor of the American partnership, which they should uh, in this case, but how interesting. Yeah, 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 no, how fascinating. But since we're on the topic of Mexico, I will ask you about what I what I was telling you about a little bit earlier. Mm-hmm. And that's that I, I think 
we saw a picture of this somewhere in one of our many group chats. Yeah. Um, but there are two factions right now of the Sinaloa cartel that have been battling over migrant um, smuggling routes. Hmm. So, you know, they've they battled over all sorts of things before, but usually it's like the... Um, like drug trafficking routes sure. or control over like local authorities or elections or corrupt security forces. Like there's a million things, but I think this might be the first time that we are seeing them like regularly fighting over migrant smuggling routes. And, and so earlier this month, we saw also here in this, um, the, the re- residents of, of this small town that I was telling you about, of Sasabe, Sasabe yeah. which is this, again, this like tiny small outpost right by the U.S., Mexico border close to Arizona. Um, so their residents have been receiving all sorts of threats um, and, and messages, just warning of an attack that was going to happen. And so one morning they awoke to a lot of their houses just like engulfed in flames. And then they came outside and there were like dozens of men with high powered Mex- high powered weapons um, only in Mexico, right? Um, but it's kind of like a movie or like some sort of episode of a show. But they were shooting each other around the main plaza. So a couple of hours after that, 100 people at least were at the U.S.-Mexico border trying to cross over and save themselves. So they weren't, uh, I mean, I'm just just so I understand it, they weren't, the, the cartels didn't come in and expel the populace of the town. The populace of the town got caught in the crossfire of, a, yeah. of an intra-cartel battle. And, and escaped. And escaped, okay. okay. And they found some sort of hole in the fence um, and came in and were begging. Um, Imagine that. CBP to protect them. And so um, I just, I, I found this so so interesting because the town has become like some sort of ghost town and the the desperate residents are fleeing right and this is something that we were just talking about too with with the situation in in guiana mm-hmm. you know things that happen there affect my affect migration towards the u.s yeah and so on the other side of the border arizona broke records for how many people they saw coming in that week so it's not just Sasabe. it wasn't that many people it's a very small town but we're continuing to see like this escalating migration crisis like we've never seen before right yeah they they marked I think two weeks ago, they marked the highest weekly total ever in that sector of. of oh, and the is it, is it the Tucson sector? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And so I thought that that was fascinating, and paired with these new numbers and the situation at the border, which just keeps getting worse and worse and worse, I wanted to ask you about. Um, so they're overwhelmed. Like the border patrol, anyone that's working at the border, they're they're undermanned. They don't have enough resources to deal with it. So. What happened to meet these needs is apparently now um, agents that are along the northern and coastal borders are being asked to help um, by expediting the virtual processing of illegal immigrants. Have you heard of this? I, I have think heard it's of been it. a little bit yeah. on the news. Yeah. Um, but, you know, virtual processing basically involves like Zoom. Basically, right. Right. Like, no, it's no, just, you, you know, know a FaceTime agents, call. Yeah, meeting in... with migrants over video call. And so yeah. I wanted to ask you what you thought about this and if you had seen anything about, about it. About all the above? Uh, let me say, well, the, so the virtual processing thing is, yeah. uh, that, that's the easiest one. Um, uh, I mean, I think it's just indicative of, of uh, the size of the crisis and the inadequacy of the force at hand to meet it. I mean, that's, I mean, that's really it. If, 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 you've got, if you've got to get on a Zoom call uh, and you're a Border Patrol agent stationed at the, uh, you know, the border between Maine and Canada... Um, and you're processing remotely uh, guys that uh, you know who are coming in the Tucson sector, then then that that might suggest to me that your bureaucracy is too small, or uh, your political higher ups have allowed the problem to, metast- to metastasize, which they have. Yeah. So that's 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 kind of the limit of my insight on that. Um, uh, the 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 expulsion of the population um, uh, from from Sasabe in um, Sonora is that right? It's yeah, in, I think it's in so. Sonora, yeah. yeah. Uh, that, that, that's an interesting one. You know, the, the, there's a few things. The, the the flood of migrants coming coming across uh, illegally entering uh, Arizona. There, there, there's anecdotal evidence. Uh, I wouldn't I wouldn't place huge huge credibility on this yet because it seems early to me, but it's possible. There's anecdotal evidence that uh, the passage of SB4 in Texas in the most recent special session mm-hmm. has had an effect on on, on migrant flows. Uh, soon it will be possible for Texas law enforcement to arrest you and uh, order your deportation uh, if you have entered Texas illegally removal. across the, yeah, yeah, removal, right. Um, so, well, they have to they have to kind of thread a needle on it. Uh, you know, you can you can order them to return, but they can refuse to do so. In which case, they're liable for a felony uh, yeah, within Texas. Arrested. So, yeah, it's 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 anyway. Also, again, carrot and stick. 
um, uh, there's some anecdotal evidence that even though that has yet to go into effect, uh, I believe, isn't that right? It goes into effect in, in March, I think. Uh, I think it's, in the, it's still think, on the governor's I think that's right. desk. So, yeah, so nobody's, thinking, nobody's yeah. right. Yeah, exactly. But the governor's going to sign it. You know, he's, yeah. he's, uh, he said he will. Yeah, he's, he said he will, and, and he will. Um, uh, that uh, the network's are already kind of taking that into effect. So that may be one reason they're coming through Arizona. Um, but uh, what you know, what 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 the what the flight of the population of Tiny Sasabe reminds me of is the expulsion of the population of Ciudad Mier, uh, in it was either 2010 or 2000. It might have been 2011 uh, that this happened. Uh, and so, so so Mier is a very old town. It was one of the Nueva Santander settlements. Uh, you know, it's a venerable history. It's it's about 300 years old. Mm-hmm. And uh, in fact, my great grandmother was born there. She was actually she's oh, actually no a native-born citizen of. Yes, uh, uh, she's born in 1915. Uh, I knew her actually. She passed away in 1994. Oh, wow. um, uh, uh, she made great enchiladas, uh, but uh, that was uh, that, that was my favorite uh, with her. She had these these wonderful cheese enchiladas. But um, uh, years later, I found because uh, there's all these digitized records. There's a 1918 uh, Bureau of Labor, believe it or not, mm-hmm. Bureau of Labor entry card in which her mother. My great great grandmother brings her into the United States out of Mier, um, uh, and uh, so this is getting a bit off track. But 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 it's interesting. She's brought over as a three year old, uh, and there's actually a, a declaration that they don't intend to seek citizenship, and so they just they, they come over and they join um, uh, 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 her father, my great great grandfather. Um, I think he was Francisco Sainz, if I remember correctly, and uh, and the, anyway, the rest is history. And now we're all Texans. So. Uh, uh, but Mier, that that same city, which has this beautiful historic plaza, a lot of rich history, um, uh, you know, real strong, uh, you know, cultural presence. When you look at the history of uh, the Rio Grande and Nueva Santander and Spanish settlement there, uh, in 2011, I believe, the Sedas came and they emptied out the whole town. They just said, you know, it's, it's time for you to go. We're going to take over the city. We're going to use it as a plaza, and and they just they, they ended habitation there. People are back now, like a, you know, a decade plus later. Yeah. They returned, but it was it was kind of a shock. Yeah. To, to, to me, it was one of the things that alerted me to just the gravity of this crisis, that they could empty out this very historic town. And what ended up happening, as with Sasabe uh, in 2023, is that a lot of the residents of Mier ended up as refugees. Uh, they came to Ciudad Miguel Aleman, which is on the river, okay. uh, as refugees in Roma, Texas, um, you know, and, okay. and, and kind of came across. And they, and, and they sort of, they may still be in the United States for all I know. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, when, when, when that happened, I remembered thinking that uh, this very naive moment that I had is as well, you know, now that the cartels are emptying out towns and it's a refugee crisis, I'll bet the federal government's going to do something about it, like the U.S. federal government. Like, I'll bet we're going to, like, wake up to the gravity of the problem. And here we are 12 years later, uh, and, and they've, they've hardly woken up at all. Um, but unfortunately, you know, tragedies, you know, a tragedy like Sasabe, you know, you and yeah. I notice it and it comes into our orbit because it's, it's in, in Mier also because it's hard up on the United States. Yeah. But that's happened over and over and over and over in the Mexican interior in Sinaloa and Guerrero and Michoacan and Jalisco and Chiapas on and on. Uh, you know, we probably couldn't count the number of small settlements and towns that have um, had their civic life ended and their population expelled. Because a criminal gang has decided it must be so. Yeah. The tragedy and, of Mexico. And that's so sad for the Mexican people, right? Mm-hmm. And I know as we wrap up this episode, maybe that's one thing we can leave our listeners with. Like, maybe don't take a road trip to Mexico. Um, well, That's the last thing I wanted to tell you. Well, I think yeah. you've heard of this, but I wanted to ask you about um, the Texan woman that got kidnapped trying to take a road trip through Mexico Which two one? weeks ago. Where was she kidnapped? In San Fernando, let me see. I, um, oh, I remember this. Yes. Well, yeah. I mean, so it's a Texas tourist. Yes. Um, and cartel gunmen kidnapped her because she was on a cross-country drive trying to go all the way to Belize. Was she uh, was was she Mexican American or just some some Anglo lady? She who's was from Henderson, Texas. From Henderson, yeah. Well, well, I mean, just like an Anglo lady. I think she was like forty-seven. Okay. Um, and she decided that she would drive to Belize, um, just for for tourism purposes. And she probably just got out Google Maps and mapped the shortest route. Yeah, and, and had no. Idea like what's actually happening, but yeah, she was driving in San Fernando. She mm. crossed the border. San Fernando no and Tamaulipas. Yeah, 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 yeah. And she was alone, but a, a group of three gunmen in a four-door truck pulled alongside her. They stopped. They told her to stop. They started pointing weapons at her. Sure. Um, and what eventually happened is like they took her. They took her vehicle. They drove her to like some sort of local motel, um, and. She was sleeping in some sort of vehicle where she, when she was able to call the police. So she got rescued 
So they didn't they didn't kidnap her. Uh, or, I mean, they did. They yeah. like they like, but but they really just stole her vehicle and dropped her off at a hotel. Am I am I misunderstanding so that? So the men were at a room in the hotel and they left her in the vehicle for a little bit, I believe, and that's when she was able to use one of the vehicles to call the police. I believe that's what happened. And the police came and rescued her? And the police came, like, she. I think she called 911, and 911 called the local Mexican authorities, and they came and they rescued her. Oh and my now gosh. she's fine, but this could have gone a lot of different ways. Thank God. And it kind of yeah. shows you, you know, like, the fact that cartels can just pull you over and kidnap you and have no fear, like, this is what's happening in Mexico. You have to, I mean, I mean, just, you, you have to know where you're going. Uh, and I mean, I mean, you and I know this. I mean, I mean, when we go to Mexico City for work, uh, for example, I mean, I mean, this place is that this place is that we don't go. Uh, and, and, you, and you have to have you have to if you don't know what you're doing, you have to have somebody yeah. who does and who can give you appropriate cautions. And then there's always but then the risk assessment is always um, uh, conditional. Right. I mean, you just don't know. That being said, driving to San Fernando was completely insane. Like, 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 like I, like, I remember as, as early as um, 2016, I believe, I was having conversations about San Fernando in a completely different context with somebody who was contemplating uh, going there, and and so, and so we asked, you know, some folks in in Mexico about it, and 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 the intel we got back is that San Fernando is uh, is cartel town, uh, apparently. Mm-hmm. I, so this is. This is secondhand. Uh, I'm I'm not going to go verify this, um, but apparently San Fernando is one of the towns where they've um, the cartel controlling it, which I think was um, at the time. I mean, this again seven years ago, mm-hmm. um, uh, Cartel del Golfo, I believe. Uh, okay. But they, but they'd wired up the whole town with CC uh, with closed circuit television, uh, and so they just monitor who comes in and out. And if they don't recognize wow. you, uh, it's not a big town. Uh, yeah. But if they don't recognize you, they're going to come get you, and they'll probably they'll, they'll probably kill you. Uh, you know. So this woman is extremely lucky to be alive. That's she's also insane. she's also extremely lucky that when she called for help, that there was uh, you know that there were police willing to help because because typically yeah. the police are so it was, so you know, honestly you know what that tells me that tells me that the men who kidnapped her and took her vehicle um, were probably freelancing. Because if they had yeah. been like real organization men, there is no way the San Fernando cops were going to come nope. and and rescue her. Like she would have been, she would have been a complete goner. Uh, you know, you know, we we've got we've got friends uh, in Mexico. Uh, I'll be non-specific here, but uh, who who had uh, you know cl- close friends of theirs kidnapped um, in this very beautiful yeah. um, recently uh, recently national park. I think and, it was on uh, Thanksgiving, right? I believe so. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, you know, in, in a place in Candor where they wouldn't have expected to, but uh, you know, this very beautiful national park and and the center of Mexico and you know gunmen come out of the tree line and kidnap these uh, these young women and and, and again thank God uh, in, in in their particular case law enforcement found them they were rescued but but what an absolute nightmare knowing that this could happen Horrific, yeah. uh, anywhere and so so again I think that's probably the right note to close on um, the primary victims of all this uh, whether it's in you know South America or Central America or up in Mexico are the people themselves who were there and uh, uh, you know we can only in our work at the Texas Public Policy Foundation in Texas policy and U.S. policy, um, uh, obviously our orientation is toward the welfare of Texans and Americans first. Um, but we can't forget that the uh, uh, almost as a byproduct, but a happy one, the principal mm-hmm. beneficiaries of our work are going to be them. Yeah. Um, you know, who can live in some kind of peace and prosperity. Anyway, that's a, a, a positive way to, to yeah, end a very sure. depressing conversation. Yes, but well, happy, thank you, Josh. Happy and, birthday to the Monroe Doctrine. Yeah. Yes. And, and Merry Christmas. I think this is our last episode before the holidays. So we'll be. I think it is. I think it is. And uh, for, 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 for our Mexican uh, viewers, um, Buen Fiesta de la Virgen de Guadalupe on December oh, yeah. 12th. Yeah. Yes. Uh, so uh, sadly, I won't make the pilgrimage this year, but uh, oh. having, having done it five times, um, uh, it's always restorative to the soul. So and maybe next year. Yeah. Melissa, good talk. Well, thank you, Josh. And thank you to all of our listeners. We'll see you next year. Mm-hmm.